My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Well, sometimes that is better. Hi, and welcome to the KingCast. My name is Eric Vespi. My name's Scott Wampler. And we're your hosts for the show, The KingCast, which will take you into the written and cinematic worlds of Stephen King. Uh, we have a great title to discuss today and the perfect guest to discuss it with. He is an actor, producer, and occasional DJ. You know him as a maniac, a dancing penguin, a black and white serial killer, Macaulay Culkin's fiercest rival, yes. and, and of course, the most lovable hobbit to ever step foot out of the Shire. We are his number one fans. Please welcome Elijah Wood to the show. <laughs> oh, I thought it was going to be Sean Astin. <laughs> oh. Well, the, yeah, Sam Wise is probably the most lovable. I, I should probably Fuck, go I got to redo my Sam. whole notes now. Yeah, Sam is the most lovable for sure. <laughs> that was well, that was great. Thank you. you like I, it? Yeah. I love the the inside uh, number one fan just kicking it off right away. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean anybody listening to this is going to see the title, so they know what we're going to cover. That's right. Um, uh, so I figured, why not throw it out there at the beginning? Yeah. Um, uh, so Elijah, you uh, be we're, we'll dive into it. You picked uh, misery for your title, but before we get into that, we want to talk a little bit about your background with King. Mm. Now, uh, you you aren't a huge reader of King, but like all of us, you uh, must have grown up with the films based on his books, yeah? Oh, sure, yeah. I mean, my introduction to Stephen King was through cinema, which is, I think, the case for a lot of people. Um, in fact, I, thinking about the show and thinking about King, it's made me curious about the people who actually came to him through the written word first, because that must be such an interesting perspective to have read his work and and look forward to an adaptation having read the novel. None of us had that experience, at least we didn't. Um, it was always the movies first and then people... Yeah, not as kids, for sure. Sure, exactly. Um, so yeah, anyway, yes, I, I came to his, his work through cinema and, and only cinema. I have not... <laughs> I have not read anything yet, and I and I don't have a very good reason why. I think maybe it's just simply that his work is so pervasive in in cinema and in television, um, and and it, I've seen so much of it that there's a, a a whole world to to sort of visit across these films over that span decades. Right. Um, and now we're actually in a in another sort of sort of King Renaissance, if you will. Um, so maybe that's it. Maybe it's just simply that it's, it's so pervasive in, in that cinematic universe that I, I didn't, I then didn't go to the novelization or to the novels to, to read them um, as a secondary, which is foolish because obviously books are, you know, they, they tend to have an expanded viewpoint. They, they incorporate elements that, end up getting cut out of films because they don't work within the context of a cinematic universe. So, you know, The Shining obviously being a very good example of that, the, the difference between that, that I do know the sort of difference between the, the book and, and the film. So there's obviously a lot to explore there. And um, I was actually on Amazon earlier to order my copy of Misery. So I'm going to, I'm going to make this book my first foray into to reading king holy shit that's it's exciting. long it's long overdue it's really ridiculous and i i know 
I just listening to your your podcast and hearing talk hearing people talk about their love of reading him, their their sense of his voice, you know, the the kind of combination of because it's Richard Bachman is his um his alias, right? The other right, yeah. So like talking about knowing King so well that you can feel his voice in Richard Bachman and things like that, I I kind of envy. I envy the reader, um, and I and I feel foolish that I've let this much time pass. But you know, I'm sitting on gold apparently. So I'm I, I I'm curious then if you have only experienced through King, what is your impression of King like as a a creative force? Like, how do you view that guy? If you have not read the books, like, how do you view that guy? If they're only through, if it's only through the movies. Well, when I was younger. I think I just had this in a lot of what I would know of what a lot of what I knew of King was through obviously the movies, but then imagery of him. So like photographs of him, him standing in front of his house, the, the sort of like the master of the macabre, right? The, the mm-hmm. guy that was sitting at his typewriter, this very classical image of, of, a, of an author Sort of with locked. giant Coke bottle glasses, and, <laughs> yeah, it, and you know, buck teeth, and it, exactly, yeah. and 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 also just sort of this this person that somehow more than anyone in our generation or slightly before could capture what it means, what what we're all collectively afraid of in such a visceral way. I think his stories are often. I don't know. They tap into our fears in a, in a, in a, in a way that feels very tangible and realistic rather than, I don't know, overly supernatural or, I mean, you know, it's not, it's not Lovecraft, right? It's, it's, right. A, it's sort of about, I mean, misery is actually a really great example of that. And I think why the movie resonates with me so much is that unlike some of the more supernatural stories that he has, which there certainly are, um, this is about a, a, a crazy fan who is right. truly sad and disturbed and has had an awful life and has had some sort of mental break from reality and lives in, an, in isolation and um, has obsessed over this, this author. It's obviously, you know, to a certain degree based on himself. There's something very autobiographical about the, the author writing about the famous author. Um, and it's, it's extremely, um, it's terrifying because of how real it is. It's not, it, it doesn't take much to imagine that sort of scenario playing out. It's not a fantastical scenario. It's a really disturbing, um, cre- I mean, you know, some of the more creepy moments in the film are, are some of the more benign, not, not the, the hyper violence. Um, it's, it's, you know, little things that she says or quieter moments that, get under your skin. Honestly, it's her, you know, even the sort of silly use of her way of cursing, you know, uh, which is not cursing is so creepy. (laughs) It's, it's, it's sort of this antiquated language of hers, which is, you know, attempting to seem really sweet and it's, it comes across as really disturbing. Anyway, I I digress. We're obviously going into the film a little bit, but I, I think, I just always saw him as this sort of person that somehow was able to tap into things that we all collectively are afraid of so incredibly time and time again um, in a way that makes his work so timeless. So that, I think that's just, that was always my perspective of him and and it remains to be the same. Um, 
he is this sort of like the dark lord of of uh of the typewriter if you will i also love like personal stories about him i find him as a as a human really fascinating like i just read i want to say this was like a few months ago i just heard this great story about because he used to be a smoker and i used to be a smoker i i quit about a year and a half ago um and he he still well, was it the scooter picture did that shame you out of uh, <laughs> smoking <laughs> no no it was, a, it was a far more intense uh a, i had a, a pretty severe fall um did, I, did you guys know about this that i fell like, yeah no i, I yeah, saw you right I after yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, it was, yeah you showed me like your your fucked up arm yeah. i was just like dude yeah it was gnarly really so that, that that was actually what led uh, me to quit um and fatherhood, and, I'm sure. And fatherhood and, and many other yeah. things. I'm um, curious anyway. how, well, I'm curious uh, how you actually quit. Because I quit via nicotine lozenges. Um, um, did you just yeah. go cold turkey or how did you, how did you kind, make it? Kind of. Um, I went to a hypnotherapist. So over the course what? of like my, my recovery, my girlfriend helped me um, and she, she <laughs> helped me. She stole my cigarettes and like hid them away and would dole out like initially it was like three a day and then it was two a day, which was good. Cause the thing about the injury that I had is there's a, I broke a bone in my hand called the scaphoid and it all, already like if, even if you're not a smoker, gets very little oxygen to that particular bone. So Smoking nicotine cuts your oxygen supply a lot. And so it would basically my hand doctor was like, in order to give that bone a fighting chance to survive and to heal, it, it would be good to cut down on smoking or, or quit altogether. And so I, of course, out of the hospital, the first thing I wanted was like a glass of wine and a cigarette. And anyway, I, I got down to like two a day and I was doing that for a while, but it just, I realized that that's just not sustainable. And I, I saw the situation as an opportunity where I'm like, okay, this is happening to me. And, and I'm, I'm now down to like two a day. Maybe it is th- the time to actually, you know, take the bull by the horns and deal with this. Cause I, you know, for years I've thought about quitting and all it's ever been is a thought. <laughs> it's, it was always, <laughs> it was always the conversation of like, yeah, one day I'll do that. Yeah, I should never, pay a boat. Totally. And never actually taking any real action. So it was, it was an, a rare opportunity wherein I could take some action. And, and I had heard from, from a few people that who had successfully quit that um, hypnotherapy was a great way to do it. And so I researched a hypnotherapist in Los Angeles, went and saw this person. It was great, but I, I, I think I expected to come out of that session feeling like a switch had been flipped. And that suddenly I didn't need cigarettes anymore and I was a non-smoker. And that wasn't the feeling that I was left with. I was left with more of a, of an anxiousness of a, of a hole that had been sort of created as a result of stepping forward into a life without it. And I I felt a lack of, like a sort of um, a lack of identity because, you know, for 20 years that, had been a part of my identity and suddenly it wasn't. So it was, it left me in this really vulnerable place and it didn't feel right. And I didn't feel like it had quite worked. Um, And I texted the, the, the hypnotherapist and told her how I was feeling. And she was like, yeah, I think you should come back. Um, And so that was on a Friday. And then I went back on the Monday and I fell off the wagon over the weekend and started smoking again. But I was like, fuck it. I'll just, I'm going to go, I have this session booked. 
I'll smoke throughout the weekend, do this again, and then go to this. <laughs> Take two. And yeah. then um, the, the second session worked. And, and to answer your question, Scott, I think it, you know, was it cold turkey? It, it sort of feels like a combination of, you know, mental accept, acceptance of, sure, sure. Of, that, of that new reality of, of, okay, this is my life now. I'm a non-smoker. A little bit of the, of the hypnotherapy taking hold, I think, subconsciously. And, and I think also stepping through that, that door into this new reality of, of just, of there also being a, a, a degree of willpower there as well of like, you know, cause it's not a magic pill. I didn't, I, I also was abstaining in a, in a cold Turkey fashion in the sense that I didn't have any supplemental thing that I was doing to help. Um, but I think the combination of a few of those things made it so that I, you know, when you, when you sort of make a pledge to yourself, even if it's on a small level, you kind of can't go back on that. You, you kind of go, well, if I go back, then I've, then I've stepped back and I, on this thing that I've said that I'm going to do. Mm. So I got far enough, like a couple of days into that of not smoking that then it was like, well, I can't stop now. And then, you know, months go by and then these sort of milestones of time. And then you're like, well, I'm not going to, I'm five months in, I'm not going to smoke now and so on and so forth. And a lot of it just became, and I'm, and maybe you, you, you experienced this too, Scott, but like that thing of every, every experience then as a non-smoker. So like the first time you have a drink and you don't smoke the first time or you have get in the car to or, drive. Yeah, or, yeah. Exactly. Or get off of a long flight or whatever it is. You know, the thing that's so effed up about smoking is that it's, aside from the nicotine addiction and what it's doing to your lungs, it also has this like mental hold on you. So the hardest thing to give up are all these associations because it's just plugged into all of these different moments throughout your day that you're sort of, that are just these insidious non-moments that suddenly become (laughs) impactful when you don't have it anymore. Anyway, so what was King's what was King's story about? Oh, so King's story, <laughs> right? So sorry. I, t- I mean, I, I'm, I'm super inter- interested in your uh, hypnotherapy. I didn't mean for <laughs> my smoking, uh, my non-smoking story to take up so much of this King cast. Um, uh, yeah, sorry. So, we'll, we'll just keep you after class. It's fine. There you go. You can just cut all of that out. Um, so uh, hell no. So Stephen King apparently takes a drive every night, and his family all know. But it's just not spoken that that's when he goes and he has his, I think, five cigarettes. So he goes, and apparently he does this to this day. So he's quit smoking, <laughs> in quotations, I think decades ago. Um, but he allows himself and his family has this understanding that that's what he does, despite the fact that he doesn't, he doesn't leave the house and go, I'm going for my smoke now. He just goes on his night drive. And I think he has five to six cigarettes in one go and then comes back home. And he does that every night. I had not I heard that before. I think it's great. I, and I, and I, I heard that story and I was like, ooh, you know, in maybe five years time when I'm far enough away and far enough out of being like, I'm now officially really a non-smoker. Maybe I allow myself that. I, I definitely have these. Like, once you get like, fantasies. once you get far enough away from it, like, um, there's, uh, there's been times where probably once or twice a year I'll be out somewhere, not, mm-hmm. not anymore. Um, but, uh, usually there's a lot of booze involved and yeah. someone will be like, I'm going to go have a cigarette. And I'm like, I'll come with you. And any time I've done that, I have regretted it. 
and not because I feel any shame or remorse because I do not feel shame or remorse, but the next morning you feel it. It feels like someone punched you in the chest, like just a single cigarette. Wow. I would recommend the, uh, the nicotine lozenges though. Um, I'm now addicted to those and chewing my (laughs) way through them, uh, to a degree that it's probably going to ensure that I have dentures by the time I hit 40, but, um, (laughs) you know, I'm keeping my lungs, I think. So, you know, I'll, I'll take that trade. Yeah. Teeth are easier to replace Scott. So you're fine. There you go. Totally. Who even Um, needs teeth? Uh, so we, I, I think we should start talking about misery yeah. with the character of Annie Wilkes, yeah. um, who is one of King's like all timer characters. There's like Pennywise, Carrie White, Jack Torrance, uh, and Annie Wilkes is up there with you know with all of them. Does it, here's a question to to the two of you since you, you're the experts. Does she appear in any other written word of his, or is she no. only in misery? No. Okay. No. Okay. Yeah, I mean, they, there, there's been. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the J.J. Abrams Castle Rock show. I've not, I've not watched any of it, um, but I've been curious, especially this season. This last season featured Annie Wilkes, right? A young yeah. Young the, this last season, it, I mean, you kind of have to look at it like an alternate King Universe, yeah. you know, thing. Um, but Lizzie Kaplan plays a young Annie Wilkes, so you could theoretically, you know, fill in her backstory. And, and she, what's funny about that performance is Lizzie Kaplan is doing the most spot on Kathy Bates uh, impersonation wow. throughout the entire thing. It's actually really incredible just as a performance that she's able to do what's essentially an imitation, you know, as the main character of a show for an entire season. And That's it still incredible. works. But, uh, but Elijah, when you said that you wanted to do this title, I thought it was perfect because, like, listen, we've known each other for many, 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 many years, like predating the Lord of the Rings. Isn't stuff, it? Tw- it's t- over twenty years now. Twenty-two, I think. It was ninety-eight. He <laughs> oh was faculty. We are yeah. old. <laughs> we are very old. Um, uh, but you know, and even when I met you, you know, everybody, you know, you were you'd been in the business for a long time, and you know, people knew who you were, you know. But especially after Lord of the Rings, like we would every time you'd come to Austin or we'd meet in L.A. Um, you know, we'd go out to eat and, you know, it was, it was always the, you know, here's the time when, you know, we're getting up from dinner and that's when, you know, you'll have the five or six people come up to ask for a picture or whatever. And you're like the nicest dude in the world about it. And you see, you appreciate every single one of them, but like, uh, you know, and you can tell that it's, it's earnest that you're like, hell yeah, you know, I'll take a picture with you. I'll sign this thing for you. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not jaded at all about it, but I do like, there's got to be something in the back of your mind that goes, is this one Annie Wilkes, right? <laughs> there's there's got to be something like that that you have to think about, especially in that, you know, when you were younger, you know, coming off of th- this global event, you know, where everybody knew your face. Did you ever have any worries about, about uh, crazed fans or any run-ins? Worries? No, not necessarily, but, but sort of awareness, I guess a heightened awareness to a certain degree. Um, cause I think once you start meeting people in that sort of fan capacity, especially in large, large groups, which really happened quite a, a great deal after Lord of the Rings, you just start to pick up on, on different, you know, sort of social cues and, and, you know, there are certain qualities that people can have where there's a sort of look in their eye that might be a little bit more intense than, a normal sort of human interaction. And those, those things I would sort of pick up on. It never really freaked me out, but it was definitely 
something I was suddenly more aware of because I'd never really encountered that before. Um, but yeah, I've, I've, I've also had a couple of run-ins with, I wouldn't necessarily, well, I guess stalker to a certain degree, but there were some, there, there've been a couple of instances where people have shown up at my door um, and kind of would walk, walk my right. neighborhood frequently. There was a, there was a girl um, in Santa Monica when my family and I lived in Santa Monica um, years and years and years ago that just showed up at our door. I want to say it was around Christmas time. So like the family was all there and um, this girl was from England and, and um, uh, said hello. And, and there was sort of pleasant, you know, pleasantries. And, but there was also this sense of like, oh man, this is a little bit of a violation. It, it, it that's a, that's a weird feeling when when someone comes in. It's one thing to meet people out in the world. It's another thing for that person to come to your your home, your private space. It feels like a little bit of an infringement. And so yeah, I'm, absolutely oh. not. Yeah, so that felt a little uncomfortable. But at the same time, you you know, like a million things are happening. Like micro observations are happening all at the same time, and you're kind of going, "Oh, okay, this person is not entirely with it." Um, you know she may not be totally ment mentally sound. So let's, you know, adjust our behavior to make sure that she's, but also be kind. You know, there's a million things to not want to like upset someone. And, and, you know, every human should be uh, treated well, um, but also within a certain safety, depending on what the situation is going on. Anyway, she was around for a while. Um, I want to say, God, months, maybe over I think it was like a year, year and a half to what? the point where she, what do you mean was around for a year? Like hanging she, out in your she house? Like lived in Santa Monica and then would walk the neighborhood streets. Um, and she actually, I think was in the U S past the point of what a tourist visa would have allowed. Uh, you know, I, I didn't do anything to like deport her or anything. She just stayed around until she left and then she went back home. Um, and she had this whole narrative about me and um, she thought what she was doing was really romantic. It's kind of interesting, actually, thinking about it now. There's there's sort of an interesting parallel to Annie because what Annie, right. a lot of what Annie is doing, despite the fact that she's literally holding someone captive, to her, there, there's nothing more romantic than what's occurring. You know, she, th this this person is someone she idolizes and... This person's work uh, is a world that she loves to visit and, and live in. And, you know, there, there's nothing more romantic than having this person in our house to, and then also, you know, facilitating a, 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 of a furthering the, the character that, that he's created and, 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 you know, establishing a new book in her house. It's the most beautiful thing. Right. So there were similar moments between me and this girl where she, she had, con in, there was nothing I could say. That was, that was also what was so fascinating to me is r the, the rational mind was irrelevant. It didn't matter what I would say rationally. It, it didn't matter because she, she, everything I could, everything I would say would be me denying my true feelings or it would always be twist, twisted from her perspective to, um, reinforce her viewpoint, which is that this is the most romantic thing, and I've come all the way from England to to see you, and I, I've I've landed at your doorstep. This is like Romeo and Juliet. So, and, and there was literally nothing. <laughs> that I that could, story didn't end well either. It did not. <laughs> it did not. And so, 
Yeah, it's 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 really fascinating to think about it um, because I I did have I mean it's by no means uh, obviously what what transpires in the context of of this book nor the film but you know dealing with someone uh, as a fan that has a, a, a perspective that is skewed and you know and, and there's something unsettling about that did I ever feel unsafe no not entirely but I also never I didn't feel. 100% secure or comfortable right. either, you know? I can't believe you're talking about this like this. I would be so <laughs> – I would be so upset. I, like – I'm I'm very uh, – I'm, I'm uh, like, an outspoken guy and very upfront about how – like, what I'm doing or how I feel. But at the same time, I value my private space. Same. There have been, there have been times that um, uh, this is a, a thing that's – particular to Fantastic Fest, actually, where um, readers of the site will come up and, and want to talk. Or right. someone that follows me on Twitter comes up and wanna, wants to talk. And it just that feels like a violation of oh, my personal yeah. space. Like, sure. I, don't, I, don't want, I, I don't want to interact on that level. The idea of somebody, like, just swinging by... For like a year, I, I would I would lose my mind, and I would not have the grace that that you have, which is incredible given the the success that you've had and um, just just your your profile in the world. Like it, I don't know, you must have superhuman patience. I, I, I could absolutely not deal with that. I, I, I've witn- I've witnessed this uh, firsthand. It's so funny because <laughs> we're also we're also very. You know, I'm I'm close with Elijah's brother Zach as well, and it's so funny. Like when we're all going out together, you know, and and you can see Zach. You like whenever that that moment comes up, and there's like the line of people to meet you, and Zach just kind of goes and stands and pulls out his phone and sighs and goes, "This is the time <laughs> to, to time to let, let Elijah and like you know meet his fans." And this is this is why I was so intrigued when I heard that uh, Elijah was taking misery because to me, misery is a, a treatise on on fandom. You know, yeah. and yeah. and you know, I, I assumed you would have something to say about fandom and and how it reacts to you, and that is, <laughs> and boy, did and, he. <laughs> yeah, you did, and that is it's it's exponentially more gracious than than I would ever be. Yeah, it's funny that that you know that particular instance that I described. There was actually another. There was another actually that happened in Austin. I don't know if I ever told you this, Eric, but there was the, there was a there was all, a, another situation where someone also just came to the house, and this is before family were living. Hey, at you, the if house. you didn't, if you if you didn't want me to to come over, you should have given me your address. <laughs> <laughs> now you're I was me alone. in front of everybody. I was, I was living alone at the house, and and uh, and this woman showed up, and and. Um, it was another. It was. It was actually. A, it was a little bit more frightening. Genuinely, I. Wow. I it was. The, it was the first time. Well, partially because I was alone, so there was no one else in the house. It wasn't like I was. I was with my family. There's. There's a. There's a sense of you know uh, safety and and just numbers and 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 you know being alone with a situation like that was pretty terrifying. And I, it ended up escalating. Where I ended, and the 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 woman ended up. I, I woke up one morning. It was quite early, and I saw this head bobbing back and forth through my kitchen window onto the back porch. So someone was what? sitting. Absolutely fucking not. No, it was ter- it was terrifying. It it actually was genuinely terrifying because at that point, 
you know, I'd, I'd, I'd spoken to this person at my front door a number on a number of occasions. She was clearly experiencing, I'm not a, a, a psychologist or a doctor, so I can't diagnose her, but, you know, almost like paranoid delusions. She was seeing things that w- weren't there. Um, she would point to things and say, you can see this, right? And, and, you know, you love me, but you're denying it and you're lying and all these things, you know, so there's that, right? And I'm, 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 I'm trying to talk to this person on a number of occasions and that's happening at my front door and it feels unsettling and it, and I don't know how to handle it, but I'm doing my best as a human to another human to just try and, and, you know, sort of diffuse it. And then I wake up one morning and she's on my back porch and that was like, chills down the back of my my spine did you call totally the cops? I actually did and and I, I you know it was just one of those situations where I was like I think this is where I actually do have to intervene right. like I can't deal with this on my own and um that's where I learned which is a very cool fact again we will get back to the movie sorry listeners um very cool fact about about south austin i don't know if this is true for all of austin proper but i was told by the police officers in 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 uh, south austin that they are trained in mental health as well in regards to being able to ascertain whether or not someone is mentally sound which determines whether or not they take them to the jail or they take them to a hospital and I just thought that was such a cool thing because, yeah. you know, more often than not, you know, if someone's suffering from some sort of mental instability, they, you know, if they're involved in something that is criminal, they tend to be dealt with as a criminal rather than taking that extra step and recognizing whether or not they're of, of sound mind and perhaps maybe they should be dealt with differently. It was really cool. And they, they did a, a, an assessment and she actually was taken to a hospital, <clears throat> which, I, which I thought was really, really cool. Well, there's an awkward silence now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I don't no, know how so, you. Yeah, I don't you, know how you do it. I, that's that's really all I got on that. I was gonna say, <laughs> say again, a, another reason why you're the per- perfect person to kind of take a look at this movie. Yes, um, it's and, so uh, weird too that I yeah. didn't even think about those two instances in in preparation for talking huh. to you guys about this film, and and I. I didn't at all think about my own personal experience uh, as it pertains to Sheldon and the character and and his fame and her obsession or any of those things. I was just thinking about the movie. Honestly, (laughs) I've spent more time thinking, like watching the film. I watched it again last night and it had been years since I've seen it. And what what I was thinking about, I was thinking about Rob Reiner having never made a genre film in this way. I mean, He'd never made a horror film. This is a horror film. You know, Barry Sonnenfeld shooting the movie, and I watched a really great behind-the-scenes feature at which they did, I think, in, like, 2001, um, where Sonnenfeld's talking about the, the lens choices, which also really stuck out at me. Like, the, hmm. those, those close-ups of, of Annie Wilkes, of, of Kathy, when she's losing her mind, or that to sort of accentuate the, the mental instability it's it's a 21 millimeter lens pushed right up to her face. And it is so iconic. It, like one of the moments that really stuck out to me, and I think it's such a disturbing moment, is after the hobbling, which is, of, of course, a very famous scene in the film, um, where uh, if anyone has not seen it, um, I don't know, I guess I ruin it because fuck it, we're talking about misery. But there, there's a moment in the movie that, 
that Annie Wilkes, because he he has gotten out of his room, she recognizes that he's gotten out, um, and she ties him down to the bed, and she performs a procedure on him called hobbling, um, which is to break both of the feet at the ankle inward um, with a, 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 a wooden block placed between both of your legs. Um, and she takes a sledgehammer to both of his feet. Uh, it is so fucked. And you, you actually see one foot move inward. Uh, and K and B did the fa- the effects, which we I did, did not know. Um, super, super great and gruesome. Um, and a really incredible iconic moment. But the, the thing that seals the fucking deal in that moment is the push in on her at the end with a super wide, it must've been again, that 21 millimeter lens and her very seriously saying almost like, She's just had an orgasm or something. God, I love you. In 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 such yeah. a beautiful deadpan. It is so disturbing to have had this this visceral, violent moment and this very calm, pure moment from her. Ugh, it's great. It's 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 one of the reasons why I love the movie so much. Um, it, it's it's anchored by that that performance that is just no, so I'm- iconic. Yeah, Bates is is on another level here. Oh, I mean, she God. she won she won the Oscar yeah. for this role, um, which is you know again you know at the time of this because this was what ninety the movie 90, I think it was ninety yeah. yeah it was ninety uh, so this is even predating Silence of the Lambs you know winning the Oscars right winning all those Oscars so it just uh, we, we uh, talked a little bit in the the Carrie episode about how Piper Laurie and Sissy Spacek were nominated you know, for, for those, for those roles, but they didn't win, you know, but like Bates won for this thing, which is unheard of for a, for the, you know, a leading, uh, you know, actor or actress in a horror movie to win. And making her leap from the the stage to the screen because she was an accomplished stage actress. That's right. And, and that was purely intentional. Like I I was, I I was listening to, um, uh, uh, the screenwriter, William William Goldman Goldman, talk about it you know, talk about it. And he was saying that from the beginning, Reiner, um, who wasn't sure he was going to direct actually, um, mm. he was, he was only going to produce for, for a little bit. And then he decided to jump on and do it. But, uh, but Reiner's big uh, caveat was he wanted a star for the Paul Sheldon part. And he wanted an unknown for the Annie Wilkes. It's part. so smart. It's so smart. Because yeah. he because has to he, discover her. She yeah. has to be a complete, you can't have any pre-existing relationship to that character or to that person. Right. It wouldn't work if it was Meryl Streep at no, all. Nope. Just no. done. Yeah. And that was somebody that, whose name was floated actually. So. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah. It, well, and you know, what's also interesting is that uh, James Kahn, who plays Paul Sheldon was like the very bottom of the list for, for everybody involved. And uh, you know, they went to every leading man at the time, Harrison Ford, um, Warren Beatty, Michael Douglas, Michael Douglas oh, God, and everybody right, turned it. Everybody turned it down, and one of my favorites, and this is calling back to the uh, Kumail episode, yep, uh, is uh, Richard Dreyfus. Richard Dreyfus, always in the mix, always in the mix, always in the mix. That Dreyfus. But, but what's really funny about about the Dreyfus story is that he was offered the role uh, of Paul Sheldon, and he took it sight unseen because he had passed on playing the Billy Crystal part in When Harry Met Sally. And he said he always regretted, and he's like, "I'm not going to make that mistake again." I'm yes, I'm going to be in your, you know, your movie, Rob Reiner. And then Rob Reiner says, "Cool, I'm glad you're in it. You know, read the script before you really decide." Though he read the script and passed and said, "Nope, not for me." That's crazy. <laughs> and, and backed up. Like why? Um, 
It's why would I, you I mean, say no? But I think you know. Well, I think horror has you know, and it goes through cycles, right? As you guys know, right. and 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 I think. Unfortunately, it, it goes through these cycles of stigmatization where, you know, there's a sort of negative stigma associated with the genre and that a serious actor wouldn't, wouldn't um, play within the, that realm. Uh, and I think, you know, late, what was that, late 80s, early 90s when this was made, yeah, so you, 1990. Yeah, you're talking like as the Nightmare on Elm Streets and Friday the 13th right. are running through their 17th I know, but this isn't know. a slasher movie. It's not. And, you're, you're absolutely but it, but that, right. But it still gets these weird associations. I mean, to the point where, and I've, 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 I've quoted this ad nauseum because I just find it fucking fascinating, but both Blatty, William Peter Blatty and Friedkin were adamant at, I mean, at, at some time, I don't know if they would feel the same now. I mean, obviously, Bladder, Bladder can't speak to it, but um, that that The Exorcist was not a horror movie. Come, like, come on, of course it right. is. But it's that weird thing of trying to separate, you know, art from this sort of banner that that comes with these weird stigmas. And, and, and we clearly, steal. we're not in that realm now. You know, there there are very well, incredibly accomplished actors with accomplished directors working in the genre space. So I think, you know, perhaps... But we still run into it a little bit now, you know, with the whole elevated horror, yeah. you know, yeah, label, really where there, there's horror movies and then there's the good ones. God. You know, the, the get-outs or whatever. It's you so know. lame. It's so I lame. think I, I, I understand this, this theory, and maybe that is why Dreyfus passed, but I also feel like um, at the time they would have been shooting this or, or fishing around that script, you're talking about late 80s. That's like peak King, right? Yeah. Um, and yeah, right. Rob Reiner uh, had previously directed Stand By Me, which was, you know, beloved. Yeah, so, so that drama. So I, just let me finish the thought. I think it's more likely that people were passing me because Paul Sheldon um, is a passive character. Interesting. Mm. You know, I, he point. is... He is largely uh, confined to a bed. He's, he's, he doesn't, he's not an, you know, I don't think anyone involved, anyone that was asked was asking for an action hero, but something a little bit, a little bit more. And, and it's worth noting that, you know, Warren Beatty almost took this role and he specifically wanted to turn the character into a, a more aggressive uh, character. And then, post-production on um, Dick Tracy took him out of the running. But I think that that's, I think that that's a clue. And I think that that's the more likely problem here. than. So than is there, is there, that's really fascinating, Scott. So is there, is there some reference to the fact that in his being cast, that he wanted to take the character in a, into a more aggressive place? Yes, it is on Wikipedia. Wow. <laughs> so it's got to be true. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, uh, I can, actually, I can send you a link. Uh, but that's, that's, that's actually Times, probably but... a better, that's a, that, that theory actually holds a little bit more water. Cause you're right. It, it, it the character, I mean, for, personally, I think the character's not necessarily an easy thing to play. And I think James Conn is fucking incredible in the movie. And I, yes, it's passive in regards to the fact that these things are happening to him, but that's, that's also difficult to sell. And I think, there's a lot going on in his journey from when he's captured until the end of the movie that I, I, I give him a, a shitload of credit for, but I, that is interesting. And Khan is like the, the, the best guy for this role. I mean, yeah. I would love Jesus Christ. I would love to see the version of this movie that had Harrison Ford in it. 
But, <laughs> yeah, yeah, because this um, would have been like just post Last Crusade, right? So imagine? it's like peak Indiana Jones. Harrison oh my Ford. god, that would be amazing! Like Harrison Ford was like my dad when I was growing up. Yeah, you know, you know, because I loved Indiana Jones. Like uh, my 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 mom took me to see this movie. I must have been like eight years old. You know, I was I was seeing this stuff very early. Uh, when was Mosquito Coast? That was mid- 87, 86, maybe. There, okay. you God, know? I love that. Nobody talks about Mosquito Coast. That film's great. Yeah, it's a good movie. Yeah, yeah no, it's 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 like one of his all time great uh, performances. I think too. So too. It's, it's, yeah. You, you, there, there comes a point, and it's somewhere in that era um, where he, you can feel him kind of giving up a little bit and mellowing as an actor. But you watch Harrison Ford. Like you know, Temple of Doom, Raiders, uh, you know, Star Wars, and uh, uh, you know, Blade Runner. It's like that the guy Clancy is movies. so. In, he, yeah. Well, I mean, the Clancy ones are kind of where he's mellowing a little bit. You know, Fugitive maybe is the last time I can remember where he's like been on fire from like the beginning mm. of right, that movie right. to to the end. But like, I, I'd always heard that Mosquito Coast is what broke him because he gave everything to that performance, and nobody gave a shit. Like no, you know, no award recognition, no box office, nobody, no audience turned up for it, and uh, you know th- that that is the scuttlebutt that I'd heard. Hmm. Interesting, yeah. Um, but uh, something that I, I would really, I, I'd love to kind of touch on is the j- just how the mo- the movie and the story has aged now because it, it was an outlandish horror thing when it came out when the book was published and when the movie came out it's like holy shit there are these kind of people out there now those people are kind of leading they're uh, convincing least, warner brothers to put a movie on hbo max yeah the, 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 these are the release the snyder cut you know yeah, you yeah. Know, people you know it's like um well hopefully you not know, quite and, as mentally deranged as annie wilkes but yes but but in but just in terms of her character is like is so much is so central to her character that she reads um you know his his book that isn't anything like the misery book says you know no mm-hmm. this is trash it's awful burn it yeah um i don't like it it's not what i like you for burn it and yeah, then yeah, when she's yeah. making him you know write what's essentially you know fan fiction for her she is dictating as it's going it's like nope this isn't working you change it now she's not letting the you know, authorial voice that she fell in love with, um, you know, actually have a voice. And and that is so representative of, of fan entitlement today. Um, And it's really hard to watch the movie now and not think of, you know, the last Jedi backlash or, you know, any of the, the giant, you know, fan groups that have shown up to demand, this is what we want. And uh, you're wrong if you don't, don't uh, do it exactly as we want you to All, do it. This shit has always existed. It's just existed in different forms. And yeah. it's being broadcast in a more public way now that we have the internet and Twitter mm-hmm. and all of that shit. But, you know, it's it's the same as it ever was. Like, think about, you know, Michael Keaton getting uh, cast as Batman in 89. Right. right. You know, uh, thousands and thousands of letters poured into Warner Brothers telling them that they, you know, they, yeah. they fucked up. No one was going to go see that movie. Um, you know, this, this, this shit has always existed. It's just, it's, it's changing with the times and it's changing with the platforms that we're, um, we're provided with. And, uh, I think on the whole, it's a net negative. I think maybe, but like all those letters came in and they still made Batman with Michael Keaton and changed their minds. Of course. Now these letters are coming in and they are 
you know, changing the direction yeah, of the that, of episode nine. That is the dif- you know, it's that like is the difference. Yeah, that yeah. that really does feel like the difference. That, that the Annie Wilkes's are actually and, having an impact. Yeah, but yeah. that's a, that's that you know that's symptomatic of the the fact that it's so public. Yeah, you know, um, private letters. That's a thing you can kind of sweep under the rug. You know, somebody with a, a Twitter thread that goes viral. That's a different thing. Now, all of a sudden, you're firing James Gunn off of Guardians of the Galaxy 3. You know what I mean? Like, because of the the, the pressure that's happening um, publicly. Uh, but Annie Wilkes, Annie Wilkes is alive and well. And and she always will be. And and King wrote this novel in, in response to the fan letters that yeah. he was getting. You know, that, yeah. you know, scared the shit out of him. As rightfully so, in my opinion. Yeah, well, what's, I can imagine. I, yeah. What's interesting? Well, I was going to say what's interesting to just to real quick to follow that up. And sorry for spoiling it, Elijah, if you've just ordered it. But the the book like kind of doubles down on that because in the movie he, the way he beats Annie is by burning the only copy of uh, Misery's Return, the one thing that she cares about. He's able to keep the secret of you know, what happens and uses that as leverage. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the only leverage he has is he knows the ending that she desperately wants and uh, he burns it in the movie. And then in the movie, he like publishes his, you know, his serious novel or whatever, you know, and, and afterwards, and that's the postscript. But in, in the book, he actually uh, doesn't, he, he burns a, a, like a, a, a fake copy. He like, that's not the copy. And he actually publishes misery's return oh. after, after he gets out. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, so and probably reaps the financial benefit of having done that too. Right. And, and they touch a little that's bit on really it. interesting actually. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's really bizarre, especially kind of viewing it through that prism of, of uh, King's own relationship with his fans. Um, I think he's also said that Annie also represented uh, uh, drugs cause he was heavy in his drug kick when he wrote this and in that he had, that, a, he had um, a real cocaine right. phase, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Have you seen <laughs> like Maximum Overdrive in high school? <laughs> it's it's widely widely spoken about. So yeah, I've always been yeah, fascinated yeah. about it just because it's it is such yeah, a big, uh, big time Coke fan. A massive right. period of his life, um, <laughs> but that's it. but but you know it's also interesting too. I think the big difference between you know speaking of fandom, I think between being um, between being someone that facilitates other people's work as an actor. And and being the author is a very different thing and, and a very personal one. Like, you know, Stephen King writes these books, writes these characters, and and has a direct relationship with the readers. It's a it's a really it's a really specific kind of back and forth relationship. And so that the vulnerability of being an author that people love that is out there and that, that person's thoughts are out there and those person, that person's characters are out there for them to there, there to be a response in the negative and, and potentially people who are a little obsessive. That's a scary position to be in. That's really quite unique. I think in regards to the, the sort of creator and the recipient of that creation's uh, work. Hmm. Yeah, you I know what I mean? It's just, it's a different, I- it's a different kind of thing. And I can understand being in that, I mean, I suppose you know, if you're a if you're a musician or in a band, there's a similar sort of symbiotic relationship. It's it's a a creator. You're creating these things, and you're putting that thing out in the universe, and then there's a direct response to that thing that you've created. That only you are the author of that thing. Um, so I can understand. I can imagine that being in that 
that position of feeling the um, the obsession of your work and the potentially, you know, occasionally unhinged uh, people that you might come in contact with, or like to your point, Eric, about you know wanting to have like Annie does some sort of sense of authorship over the characters that you've created. That's really, that's a very specific relationship and, and one that is, that does leave him as an author, very vulnerable. Um, well, and King, King himself is, is kind of unique in that. Like he, he would always write forwards to his, his books hmm. and he would address the reader as constant reader. Right. So it's, cool. he was having a direct dialogue with you and, and as, especially as a kid, I remember reading it and I'm not like sitting there going, Oh, he only wrote this for me, but hmm. it has that same reaction. Hmm. That same, he is speaking to me. It's like watching TV and somebody's looking you in the eye, right. Looking straight down the, you know, the, the lens. Okay. It's like, th- there is a different connection there. Um, and so you're, you're right. There is this weird, like personable, you know, connection that he has that I don't remember seeing in a lot of other authors that I was reading when I was a younger. Interesting. I've got to, I've got to read it. I would know that if I read his books. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if you like misery, we'll give you a list. Yeah. <laughs> um, Elijah, if you found yourself in a position where you got in a car wreck and you woke up in a bed mm. in Annie Wilkes's house, she wanted to film a movie with you and had written a script. How do you think you would react? Like, what's your play there? Are you going through with it? Or are you like, you know, trying to talk your way out of it? I think that there's, there's a lot of nuance in that, uh, in that the assessment of what that situation is. And I think, you know, identical uh, to misery. I would, I would, I would be very delicate in how I would play that out and not dissimilar from how it plays itself out in the film, which is a, a willingness to participate because if, if, if he doesn't participate there, there's a genuine fear for his life because she's so unhinged. Right. So mm-hmm. I, I probably would do a similar thing. I would, I would try and play that out as give that person because that person holds the power. <laughs> so in that scenario, f- for fear of your life, I-, I-, I think I would, I would try and and placate that individual's interest as much as possible as a means of of you know uh, softening that barrier potentially and getting getting out, finding some way out. Right, right. There's an aspect to the movie that I would love to talk about. Everybody talks about the hobbling scene. It's so iconic. Sure. It is it is wince inducing to this day. Like you you see it and just the it's the perfect cut, by the way, seeing the foot bend at an unnatural angle for just a second. Oh yeah. Like it is the it is one of the the great like shock scenes of all time. But the, one of the things that I really love about the movie, and this is a a testament to William Goldman's writing, mm-hmm. is Paul Sheldon's plan to uh, to slowly uh, save his pain meds and to yeah. like he has this whole thing and you he doesn't you don't know why exactly he's doing it but you know he's doing it he's hiding them he's cutting a hole in his mattress yeah like all this stuff and it all leads to that dinner sequence and so much real estate in the movie is set up to this right. thing 
and this is the time, you know, where he slips her all this pain meds. This is his win. Oh, and she accidentally spills the wine. And, and like just the look on James Conn's <laughs> face. Yeah. At, you know, and that Reiner holds on that as she's cleaning it up. And you just see like these weeks of planning. He's died inside a little bit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But he can't, he can't like express anger or anything. It is one of my favorite little moments in that movie. Oh, yeah. um, and it's something that I don't think we would see a lot today. There's not a lot of filmmakers I could see playing the long game on something that doesn't pay off. That isn't a success, right? That this is typically, if you see somebody slowly building up to something, they don't, they, they don't fail at it, you mm. know? Yeah. And that's it's a, like, that's a really good point. And, yeah, and I think and, also what is so great about it too um, is that there's no explicit articulation of what he's doing. And, and they, and they were talking a little bit about that in the, the mini doc that I saw is that there, you know, normally in a film, you, someone would mutter under their breath, like the plan that they have, or they would, they would <laughs> maybe articulate it a little bit more so that, that it's, it's more cleanly spelled out for the audience. But, but Goldman doesn't do that as a writer it's just you're you're intuiting what's happening, and you're either picking up on it or you aren't. And then at the moment that that he he requests the candle and she steps away, if you if you've been paying attention, then you're like, oh fuck, now it's on. And and if you haven't, then it's a beautiful surprise of oh fuck, that's what he's been doing this whole time. It's just right. great, like. It, it trusts that the audience is intelligent enough to pick up what's been what what the plan is, and even and even so, if you've missed the plan, the realization in that moment is so delightful. Um, and then obviously, like the failure of that plan is is absolutely gut wrenching and and so satisfying in the context of the movie. You wouldn't, in some ways, you wouldn't want to see him like watching the movie now. I wouldn't want to see him succeed because that that would the downward spiral of where the movie goes from there is so delicious and so great you know what's he going to do like it, the movie <laughs> would be over <laughs> he would shrug yep. her and get the fuck out of there yeah um it's interesting too the uh, uh, another thing i picked up from from reiner is he talks about the the fight at the end of the film that results in annie's death as being like a lovemaking scene. And that was huh. his perspective in shooting it was that it's, you know, obviously she's in love with him. There's, it's an unrequited love and it's, it's not something that's reciprocated, but in that moment, the two of them are fighting and they have this very physical altercation on the floor that is so incredible and brutal um, to watch, especially with like the fucking burn bits of the novel being shoved into her face. Like it is so right. fucking visceral. Um, but interesting to hear him talk about it in that regard that it's sort of this, um, I don't know, like a lovemaking scene in the, in the, in the culmination for the two of these people. Um, clearly not, not the way that she wanted things to go. Uh, but interesting to, to have that perspective on it. Did you also notice that, uh, that whenever that fight, is going on. Uh, it's the only time that, uh, uh, that, um, Annie curses, like that's not making fun of like the writing a bastard of a check or whatever. Like when she's fighting him and there's, you know, he's strangling her. Like she actually like legit just out of anger curses. And it's like such a great 
it's a small, subtle thing, but it just shows instantly the facade is dropped. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's her true. It's it, her true self. Yeah, it's her true self for sure. It's it, well, it it kind of reminds me of my wife because. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay. Well, well, you know. Here we go. Well, I'll tell you. Um, she was raised in a very religious household, a uh, mm. very a very conservative household, and so she um she will say fudge, she will say um, bull crap. She will, you know, I, I have the filthiest mouth you've ever heard. Um, Same. <laughs> and, but, but she will tiptoe around actually swearing. If I ever actually hear my wife say the word fuck, I know we are in deep territory. Like something has <laughs> horrible has, has gone wrong. And, and that's, that's sort of what it reminds me of. Like, and it'd be, and it'd be shocking. Like you'd be like getting slapped, right? It is. Every time it yeah. happens, I, I sort of double take on it. You know, I mean, everyone I know swears. Uh, I have I have no problem with swearing. I, I think uh, swearing is the spice of language. You know, but, um, uh, but no, I get I get it exactly. I mean, um, yeah, yeah. A, a, a mutual friend of ours, Elijah, you know, Aaron Morgan. He 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 was also you know raised fairly religiously, and so he and he he will say the f word every every other you know word. It's totally fine, but for for decades you know that i've known him he couldn't say goddamn without feeling like embarrassed about it wow right yeah and so like you know so like you know i would hear the gosh darns and stuff like that and that just kind of became part of his personality then sometime in the last like three or four years he is for whatever reason he's let that go and so every once in a while he'll he'll let out a, a goddamn and i'll be like oh you know and it, it's always like surprised me he's like oh yep he says that now god damn it's such a good one <laughs> oh Oh, yeah, I it's love such an automatic one. It's, pretty, it's just it's satisfying. satisfying, real yeah. satisfying. What is your one, what is, what is your favorite being... swear word, Elijah? Favorite swear word? Uh, Some you can only yeah. do one. James Lipton. Yes, James Lipton question. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> you can only do one swear word for the rest of your life. <laughs> it would be fuck. I think. Well, yeah, yeah, a simple, simple fuck, not not a motherfucker or. Well, see, I yeah, you can't modify it can only, because it can only be one. I choose fuck because I think, in my mind, that can that can be any iteration of fuck, mm. right? Um, so yeah, I think that would probably be my favorite. But yeah, I, I I think I also I was raised relatively conservative too, not quite in, as intense as as Aaron perhaps, but. Um, cursing for me when I was a kid was just an absolute no-no, uh, and there were ways around it. And I think, goddamn, for me too, like it took me a minute to really embrace that. I think I'd already like shit and fuck, and those things were were well underway before I was like absolutely committed to goddamn for whatever like holdover from that <laughs> from that upbringing. It's funny. My, my favorite curse word's cockadoodie. Oh god. Hmm. <laughs> Her cursing in the film is the, is some of the most terrifying stuff because it is so benign and so silly, and yet it is like there's something so sinister about the it. The fact that there's a choice being made there, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, like somewhere in her head, the choice is being made not to be offensive, right, while also being as violent and aggressive as possible in her her uh, speech patterns. Totally, there, there, the the disconnect there is is really terrifying. That's yeah. what's so scary. You're right. It's it's two things that don't that don't work, and they're not in accordance at all. Right. It's like it's like seeing a very mad child that doesn't <laughs> know how to swear yet. You know. It's it's really 
So yeah, I have but, a, me, good, but me use it just as intensely as if they were swearing, yeah. <laughs> I, I have a question, something I thought about whilst watching the movie. So first, first, the first thing I thought about, about 30, maybe 40 minutes into the movie, I, I was like, wait, how is he peeing? How is he? <laughs> and, then, and then there's a, there's a scene where he pulls out um, the receptacle, right? Right. Yeah, the catheter. And I go, oh, okay. So that's that's how he's been doing it the whole time. Now, well, I ask you this. How has he shit? Uh, I'm going to assume that there's probably some, some diaper situations okay. going on there. Or a bedpan. Yeah, I'm not sure if they... It's Forgive me, it's been a while since I've read, uh, I read the book. I guess a bedpan doesn't so. work if everything from the below the waist is shattered. You can't stand up to take a shit. That's the thing. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, it's the one. It's the I, one I of the movie that I. I just, well, Elijah, you you thing. made a movie with Rob Briner at one point. If you can get him on the horn and, <laughs> and, and get some clarity on this thing, and we got to blow this wide open. Yeah, his his notorious follow up to uh, Misery and a Few Good Men North. That North uh, was, <laughs> was North before or after this? It was after, right? After, yeah. North was ninety two, ninety three, something like that. I yeah. mentioned um, to some of my colleagues that I was, uh, you, know, you know, that I was recording with you today for this. Mm-hmm. And in that conversation, I realized, oh, shit, Rob Reiner, like Misery and North. And uh, it, it, it might do you good to know that uh, everyone that I was talking to was like, North is pretty good. <laughs> it's got a bad reputation, but it's pretty good. You know, yeah. I, I have I have yet to actually see it. I'm, I'm sorry to say, but. Uh, I only know it from the the Ebert review. He was very hard on it. He was very hard on it. Yeah, it's 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 a in a bad mood. Movie. I I've not seen that movie in a super long time, uh, so I I actually have no idea how that holds up. Well, North has a another misery connection beyond Kathy uh, Bates. Rob Reiner. Well, and beyond Kathy too. Uh, there's also um, uh, Bruce Willis is in it, and he ended up uh, playing Paul Sheldon on the stage. Oh, they did that's like right. A, yeah, like I would have loved to oh. on Broadway. They did a Misery show with him and Laurie Metcalf. Yeah, and, Laurie oh. Metcalf. Oh, in, God, in the, Metcalf would be incredible. How killer is that casting? I I would have loved to have gone. Both and seen of that. them actually. That's a really cool pairing. It's actually, God, that makes so much sense as a play, doesn't it? Because it really is. It's another thing that occurred to me watching it is that it, it, it's in this particular time that we, we all find ourselves in um, of isolation. Right. This movie is almost the perfect film to make during this time. It, 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 it's two actors. It's one set, basically. Um, you know, there's very little exterior work. There's some, but it's it's primarily a, a two-hander. So it's it's sort of interesting to watch it now because it, it really does sort of speak to this this isolated period of time that we're in but it also it makes sense as a play I, that would be an incredible thing to see as a play also shout out to speaking of the actors that that sort of build out the rest of the cast richard fonsworth man oh what a treasure every time yeah he's so he's good right. and and uh and the woman playing his oh, what's uh, her name uh, his Oh, she's she's so great in that that moment in the car, um, in the, his squad car when she puts his hand on on his leg and and you know he he kind of pushes it away like you know we're in the, we're on like cop time basically. There's none of that. And, yeah, and just the, it's so lovely to see you know these fleeting moments of you know 
love and romance between an older couple. There's just something really lovely. It felt, it felt so genuine. Um, it, it was taking us outside of Annie totally. Wilkes' house, you know, beyond just physically. You like, we're also seeing, you know, a non-toxic yeah. relationship forming, you know, at the same time. Um, uh, but uh, Frances Sternhagen was also in Darebont's The Mist. She was one oh of the, 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 the people in the, the supermarket. Are yeah. you, got, you guys, So she's got a little steam. You must be cred. doing an episode on The Mist, right? Oh, no one's it's, picked uh, it yet. it's definitely on our list. Has someone I mean, picked it? Obviously, we can't talk about it now because this is not the episode. But I mean, oh, man. And just also the story behind that particular film. And and mm. I think, you know, I've long been fascinated by uh, by Darabont. I think Darabont's incredible. And yet he's also been like, he's, he's had a rough go of it, man. And that particular movie... Mm. Uh, was a real struggle for him too, and you know he he, yeah. he wanted the ending to be a dark a dark ending, and and I think they cut his budget in half, if I remember correctly, if lore is correct. Um, and uh, you know, I was on I was on I, that set. For yeah, weeks, that's yeah. right. Yeah, right. yeah. No, he. I, I I have lots of stories, and we'll we'll, we'll save a, a bunch of them. Yeah. For, for, for Dude, whenever that episode it, airs, but do, it. do you think? I mean, you know Frank personally, don't you? You've you've interacted with him. You, I, we, I did yeah. at the time. You know, I've kind of lost contact, so I need to figure out a way to get back back to him. But you know, uh, Darabont next to Reiner, you know, probably has the best King batting average. Yeah, right. And Flanagan between the Flanagan's and Flanagan's coming coming it. on him. Yeah, Flanagan Flanagan to me like takes precedence because he has taken. Two King novels that should absolutely in no uncertain terms have not fucking worked on screen and made them work. Mm. Like, that's not misery or stand by me. Like, you can look at those properties and say, like, yeah, I I know how you make this movie. Mm -hmm. How the fuck are you going to do Gerald's game? They announced Gerald's game and it was like, are you people out of your mind? (laughs) Like, are you going to make a movie out of Gerald's game? Like, this is... This is crazy. And then I, I I saw that movie with an audience at a Fantastic Fest. And the only other time I've ever seen an audience react to a movie like that at Fantastic Fest was uh, Green Room with the machete scene. Ooh, and everyone God. in the theater just shrieking and like squirming in their seats. And it was it was incredible. Um, Flanagan can do no wrong with, with King to me. Now he's doing a... Uh, what what's it called? Revival. Revival, Revival is right. Woo. That's yeah, fascinating. That's going to be something yeah. else. Because that, that's that's like King really going hardcore into Lovecraft totally. territory. Totally. Yeah. So where where does the book having both of you having read the book? Where else does it differ from the film? I'm curious. With misery. Uh, well, pretty pretty famously, the hobbling scene is different in the book. She actually has an axe and cuts <gasps> off. And then One cauterizes it with a blowtorch. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. And Reiner, no, like actually, Reiner, argued against it, and I'm, I'm really curious why. I understand it's it, it, you know, maybe it was just over a line for him. It's, it's too gory. It's too visceral. Um, right. he accomplishes the same thing cool. with the sledgehammer, and I, I think, it's I even think, worse. A, yeah, I think yeah, there's an argument worse. to be made that it's actually worse because you, when you see that foot fucking bend over the the wooden block or whatever you're like oh my god but um and also like how are you gonna cut someone's foot off on a bed like if you're on a bed you're on a mattress right so there's no like firm surface underneath you know you would have to hack at it for a while to get that foot off 
<laughs> you know what I'm saying? In, in like, your personal experience yeah. of, of removing. I'm just saying, that, like, if you're chopping someone's foot off in a bed, that axe is going to be bouncing off the mattress. It's true. Yeah, it's true. A calamity of errors, you know, <laughs> for you. Uh, the the book also has has a stronger focus on um, Paul being addicted to the painkillers that yes. she's giving him. Oh. So, like when when he's escaping, he's not only escaping to get you know the painkillers to you know for for drugging or purposes. He's getting them because he's he needs oh. them. Right, he's addicted to them. Um, and, uh, so there's a lot of time spent there, which you see, you know, it's probably a lot of King working yeah, out his own addiction yeah. issues. Um, uh, it, but you know, what's crazy is that as dark and as violent, uh, as the, as the book is, um, even more so than the movie, like, for example, like she, in the movie, she shoots Richard Farnsworth with a shotgun and it's a pretty brutal, scene it's a great squib effect it's oh, a great God, yeah. you know bloody squib uh but in the, in the fucking book she runs him over with a writing lawnmower right That's so it's, it was. it's even like i knew it was something yeah i knew it was something. yeah and and again forgive me if if any of my my recollection on this is a little hazy i do my best to try to reread every one of these titles before we get to the episode it's just been a really hectic oh, uh, few weeks yeah. and i wasn't able to get to this um but um one thing that when I was doing my research on this is that um, King originally was writing Misery to be a Bachman novel, and it would have been released as a Richard Bachman novel if uh, uh, if he hadn't been outed when Thinner came out. Um, and as such, the Richard Bachman stuff is always darker. And he was saying the original intent. Um, even King is very notorious for not planning ahead, right? People give him shit for his endings because, you know, he, he doesn't outline, mm. he, you know, he just sits down and writes. Um, and, but for this one, he actually had an ending and uh, in mind that he didn't write, end up getting to because the, you know, the characters went different ways. Uh, but it was even darker. Like the original ending was she was going to kill Paul Sheldon, uh, feed him to her pigs, and then use his skin to bind the copy of Misery's Return. Whoa! That was his original idea for the ending of this. I kind of like it. That is the more Bachman ending. I I like it, too. That is the more Bachman ending. I do. I like it. Um, But he was saying as he was writing it and seeing how much Paul was fighting back just as a character and discovering that as he was writing, you know, it changed. Mm. You know, I mean, there's also a notorious... um, uh, It's like his ending for Cujo... Like he, he notoriously says that he didn't uh, write to that ending that it, he was just as surprised as the readers were when, you know, the kid that's trapped in the car dies in the book, the kid dies um, in the movie he lives. But, you know, he was asked about, you know, how dare you do that? It was one of his early, you know, I guess Annie Wilkes was saying, how did you, how dare you kill the kid? <laughs> right. And he um, said, fuck them kids. Uh, and he was. Yeah, and he was like, listen, it was as much of a surprise. I was as shocked as you were. You know, he at, he, at some point, you know, he's, as a writer, he's he feels like he's just kind of sitting down and is a conduit for whatever he's, you know, out in the ether and, you know, spilling onto the page. It's kind of what he views wow. himself as. And so, yeah, this is an example of his characters, you know, uh, taking him away from the ending that was originally in his That's mind. That's really incredible. That's so mm. fascinating, this idea of, of writing something, getting in, having an idea of where it's going to go, and then the the characters themselves start to shift the the, the final destination of of where the story is going to go. That's really fascinating, and and being and being that open to the process too, to kind of go to be malleable enough, you know, to sort of see that it could go somewhere else. That's really mm-hmm. interesting. Well, is there anything else you guys want to want to touch on? I wanted on to or? ask one question as well because again, I'm I'm really kind Please of uh, um, I don't know a great deal 
of the written word. And, and I think what I've always been fascinated with, and I've heard a little bit on your podcast about it, um, is just the difference between Bachman and King. <laughs> I don't really know what those things are. And I guess what was the original intention behind creating an alias um, in, in Bachman? Uh, what, is, what is that about? Uh, we, we get into this a little bit in a future episode, but the, the short version is that um, back when King was, uh, when he was first, you know, be coming into his own as a, as an author, you know, it was around, you know, Salem's Lot, Shining, you know, era, late seventies, he had all this backlog of stuff that he had written in mm. college uh, that were darker stories um, that had never seen the light of day. And, you know, he wanted uh, to publish them and he was more than happy to publish them under his name, but he, uh, uh, the publishers at that time were like, no, you can't do that. Authors get one book a year, maybe two. Anything beyond that is is um, flooding the market and it's going to damage your, your oh, brand. Oh my you're, you're God, growing. right. And, and so he, you know, he had that and he also had this like meteoric, you know, rise with the success of mm. Carrie. Uh, you know, that shot him into the stratosphere and, you know, his books suddenly became like automatic bestsellers and he was about the times he was starting to release the Bachman stuff, he was also curious about whether or not it was the quality of the work or he just got lucky and, and people bought it because of his name. So there's and almost so like an experiment that Bachman with Bachman to see if it would be a successful right. interesting. Right. But like all the Bachman stuff is, is very dark. Um, uh, there, there's one about a, a school shooting called Rage. There's a, a very famous one called The Long Walk, which is my favorite of all the Bachmans. Uh, that um, uh, what was the other uh, uh, road work and running man and then thinner right? Yes, Scott? I feel like we're lo- we're missing one. Well, there's Blaze, but that's much later. Blaze was later, yeah. Um, but he, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he ended was up being originally found. supposed to be a Bachman thing, no? Well, I don't know if it was originally, I think that, that that whole concept, he had an idea of, to write the same story from both different sides wow. of that, that personality. Yeah. Uh, so Desperation was the Stephen King side, and then Regulators was the Bachman side. Like, how would you write that story, you know, if, uh, under the different thoughts? But like, I mean, Misery is interesting because he had started approaching it that way. Like, almost all the Bachman books that came out were were previously written. It was all stuff he'd written in college or, you know, pre-carry. And uh, Thinner was the only one he wrote when he was Stephen King writing as Richard mm-hmm, Bachman, mm-hmm. right? Richard Bachman was his, his like, earlier edgelordy, you know, personality. Totally. Uh, you know, his, his angry college kid personality uh, was more Richard Bachman. So as Stephen King writing as Richard Bachman, it became a different thing. Thinner was that, and then Misery started as that. It's so yeah. interesting. It's, it's funny. It, this is a, a, a weird parallel to draw, but it reminds me of Prince a little bit in the sense that Mm, Prince at the height of his of his uh, career, so like the the eighties, the kind of quote unquote like golden period. Um, he was writing so much; he was so prolific as an artist that he ended up writing for other bands and other people. So, like the time, those are Prince records, but it's the time. Right. Um, he couldn't, under contract, release as many albums as he wanted to, given how much material he had. It's really interesting, and and it makes sense as a as an author too, like. You know, there's there's only so much that an audience can pay attention from book to book at a time, and and if you wanted to release five books a year, that could be seen as way too much and oversaturation, and you know people wouldn't necessarily be able to to keep up. So I understand that from a publishing standpoint, but really cool that there was a sort of 
workaround. Like, fuck it. <laughs> I'll take this other stuff and, and find a different, you know, give it a different name. That's really well, and it was starting. It was starting to work for him. I mean, thinner, you know, was his his first hardback um, as as Bachman, and it was it was already like pre selling well. And like, if if he hadn't been found out, I think that it could very well Bachman could have grown uh, in stature, maybe not to Stephen King levels, but you know, you know, it would have grown. Who? How was he outed? Sorry, I don't mean to take up so much of this podcast on a different, totally different subject. But how was he outed? I'm curious. <laughs> it was. Um, uh, a bookstore clerk in Washington D.C. like uh, just noticed similarities uh-huh. in in uh, King stuff and Bachman stuff. So he did some research and he ended up digging into some nosy motherfucker. Uh, That's the answer. Some nosy, yeah, some nosy Ruined motherfucker. It for everybody. Yeah, yeah. But he he looked into it. He found like the the very first Stephen King or the very first Richard Bachman paperback um, had a copyright held by Stephen oh, King, okay. and every every other Bachman. Stuff uh, the copyright was technically owned by I think King's manager or agent, mm-hmm. uh, whose name wasn't as out there. It's not like today where you could just go, you know, type into Google sure, who was Stephen sure. King's agent yeah. or whatever. Uh, so that that's kind of how how he found out. But like you know, King was like, "Hey, yeah, you got me, cool." You know that that was pretty much his his reaction, and he ended up doing an interview with a guy uh, that the New York Times I think Amazing. ran. And uh, just saying, yep, yeah, this is why I did it, and and uh, these are the books, and here's the backstory of how Richard Bachman yeah, came to really be. That's really cool. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Well, Elijah, do you want to? I think we're just about tease anything. What are you? What are you? What are you working on? Yeah, you got anything to plug? This is probably a couple I got weeks out. Nothing right now. Um, I want to. I well, then I'll, I'll direct a question at you. Tell me everything you can legally about. Richard Stanley's next Lovecraft movie for SpectreVision. <laughs> it's, uh, there is a treatment. Um, Very exciting. Yeah, there's a treatment. And I think the next, I mean, I think he'll probably go to script relatively soon. But yeah, there, it's so far just a, a treatment that, that we're kind of fine-tuning. As How excited were you by the reaction to Color Out of Space? Oh, man. Yeah, you must so, have been so fucking satisfied, right? So satisfied and so grat- so gratified for him, you know. After right. after two decades of not having made a feature film um, that isn't a documentary, it, it, it was it was so gratifying to have been able to get him financing to get this dream of his uh, made into a feature film, and then for it to be received in the way that it was was just awesome um and and just yeah just super gratifying for him he's just a he's a he's a really special super smart fascinating and talented individual um that should have been making movies all these years and and thankfully he now is in a place where i think he will continue to make movies from here on out and that's a really wonderful thing to have been uh a part of you know I understand that. I feel like the, I, feel, I, I think I understand the, uh, how do you, uh, protective is the wrong word. There's, there's a bit of that. But um, like I hosted the premiere of that at Fantastic Fest. Oh yeah. When it, and um, when I, when I, I introduced him and he, he, he came out and uh, I, I just hugged him. Like you want to fucking hug him. Like you feel yeah. terrible for everything that happened to him. And uh Man, and I'll I'll never forget that. That was that was a great screening, great night, 
Um, and he's just, that guy is just fucking magical. He really know? is. He Unlike really is. anyone you would ever meet in your life. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he has life experiences that are, are beyond <laughs> what any of us can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> so, I've eaten, a, I've eaten a lot of hallucinogenics and I'm not n- anywhere near on the level of Richard Stanley. That guy is living in a completely different world than the, he the re- rest he, of us. He really is. Um, yeah. So fo- follow-up yeah. question, is is Nicolas Cage a Stephen King fan? And if so, will you get him on this podcast? <laughs> I imagine that he probably is. He's got to be, right? I think he, I think he is. He He's a... He certainly as a as a he's a cinephile i know that he he's a voracious appetite for for films both past and present um so i would imagine that that extends to reading too i would have thought that stephen king would have had a, a relatively big impact on him growing up yeah I know he's a huge De Palma fan. In my few interactions with him, like talk always turned to Phantom of the Paradise, which I know he's a huge right. fan of. Yeah, yeah. I would have, I would have thought so. I definitely would have thought so. I bet he is. Cool. All right, we'll find out and then get him yes, on the sure. podcast. Easy peasy. That, that's your. <laughs> that's that my mission. Your, should I choose yeah. to accept it? That is your mission. You're gonna going to make it happen. We're going to show up on your patio one morning with our, oh, and, and our, one, our heads one bobbing thing. outside your window. One thing to mention too that we didn't get to, but there, there's a really great shot. Yes. This is another sort of Barry Sonnenfeld special that actually really reminds me a little, um, not quite as technical, um, but a very similar effect uh, of the shot from um, Children of Men, where the camera swivels inside the vehicle. There, there's a moment right. in this in this film where. We're, we're essentially, uh, uh, we're just like a tracking camera driving down the road in a, in a POV fashion as we pass the police vehicle after Richard Farnsworth has just tried to, just investigated where he yes. thought maybe there was a crash, but didn't find the car. Great reveal of, of the car, by the way, in that one shot. And then this shot is a POV of, of some car driving down the road and it passes them and then turns swivels and you reveal that it's Annie driving the car. It's so fucking rad. It's such an innovative, interesting. Yeah, I know that shot. Yeah. It's great. And initially, you're you're not sure what the POV is. It could just simply be a camera moving down. It doesn't have to be a POV of a of a of a vehicle. But then you realize that it is. And then spinning around and revealing her in this very like deadpan. She doesn't even look at them, knowing full well that they could have potentially seen the vehicle that, that she's taken Sheldon from. It's just such a great shot. It's so iconic. Agreed. Awesome, man. Well, thanks so much for coming on and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll have to get you reading and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll get you back on yes. for, for one that you, you've, uh, you've read too. That, that'll I'll be your order. Own I'll sometime. order some. And then, yeah, if you guys want to send me a list of things that I, I mean, beyond the obvious, um, cause there's plenty that I, I would want to read just sim- simply having loved the movie versions. But if there are specific books that you want to point me to, uh, uh, don't hesitate to share. That'd be awesome. Yes, absolutely. Well, you guys are great. I like you both very much, and thank you so much for having me on. It was super oh, fun. Th- no, thank you for being here. This was great. Many thanks to Elijah for coming on. That was a awesome episode. The good son himself on the KingCast stage. I'm very excited. The goodest son. The best. Yep. Screw you, Thomas J. All Fro-yo right. Froyo so. Baggins. <laughs> Fro-yo In Baggins. the flesh.
Yes. Yeah. No, he got way, uh, way in deep about, about his, uh, his personal, like bad fan, fan encounters. I, mm-hmm. I wasn't expecting him to go that, that crazy. Yeah. Anymore. I hope for, for the love of Christ, I hope I'm never famous. This shit sounds awful, man. Well, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm yeah, going to show up at your front door and, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't want, door. like, I don't, man, I can barely have my friends in my house, much less. You know, people bobbing their heads outside my kitchen window at eight in the morning. What is this? <laughs> All right. So I would leave. Uh, I would move out of the house. Frank. Yeah, you would. I'd be done. And that's why, that's why I'm going to stalk you. Cause I want your house. <laughs> well, fair. It's a nice house. <laughs> uh, so next week we are switching gears a little bit into slightly, shall we say goofier territory. Which one is the, Oh, this is, um, this is lawnmower man. We are going into the lawnmower. <laughs> no. man. Um, what should we? What should we tell people about this episode beforehand? Uh, our well, we can say that our guest is a very funny woman person. If we say uh, if we if we don't specify that it's a woman, everyone's going to pick like the same three dudes, and it's going to be embarrassing. Yeah. No, it's a funny woman. Um, is Michelle Obama? We got Michelle Obama. <laughs> it's Rosie O'Donnell, folks. Uh, it's a, a friend of mine via social media. She is a writer and a comedian, um, has an interesting tie to one of our future guests. And, um, she picked the lawnmower man of all things, the lawnmower man. Yeah. So next week we will be diving deep into early nineties VR, <laughs> uh, uh, the simple Jack ish, uh, monkey. All of that shit. We're yeah, getting into yeah. it. It's a rowdy, rowdy episode. Um, kind of unusual. It's it's unusual for the episodes that we've run so far because it's it's a little out of hand. We yeah, get, we get we get a little worked up talking lawnmower man. Yep. So stay tuned for that one. It'll be a fun one. Oh wait, is it Andy Dick? Uh, it is not Andy Dick. Fuck. No, never Andy Dick. Well, we'll see. 